Uh, We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 21 uh, today. So if you have your Bible, I hope you will grab that out and turn there. We're going to be starting in uh, verse 25 is where our passage will begin uh, today. But before we uh, jump into reading the passage together, let's uh, pray. Uh, Father, uh, we just praise you today as the king over all creation, the one who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, the one who flung the galaxies and stars into existence, who placed them there with precision, every orbit of every moon and every planet is designed by your hand, every molecule placed with your careful consideration. Lord, when we think of what a great and grand God we serve, we are humbled. Lord, we say with the psalmist, who are we that you are mindful of us or that you care for us? Lord, we have come from dust and to dust we shall return. And we confess that we are not worthy to be called your subjects, to live for you as our king. And yet in Christ, we are so thankful that he has redeemed us. He has made a way for us to be brought, to be sons and daughters of the king. We thank you, Lord, that one day you will make all things new. You will wipe away every evil and you will transform us. And we pray until that day, Lord, would you uh, help us to be your people, to live honoring lives to you. Now we pray for our ministries here at the church men's Bible study, women's Bible study, community group, these, these things, Lord, uh, that we have set up, that we might love one another and love you more. We pray that through these, you would draw many of us closer to one another and closer to you. Lord, we want to be found faithful as a church uh, as when you come. So until that time, Lord, help us to glorify your name. We pray as we open your word that you would, uh, yeah, just open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, For over 2,000 years, uh, Christians have always believed that Jesus is returning. This is something that among Christians, uh, nobody really debates Everybody agrees that one day uh, Jesus will return. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds uh, in Christian history, you know, states that Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, and there he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who will come, uh, to, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Everybody agrees Jesus is coming back. They disagree uh, to when and how and what that exactly looks like. You know, there's lots of disagreement there. But the fact that he is returning, everybody agrees. Here's the question, though. Everybody agrees Jesus is returning. What difference does Jesus' return make in our lives? Like the fact that he is returning, how does that affect how you live now? What difference does it make? Or if you think about it another way, you know, Jesus often tells us to be prepared for his coming. What does that look like? What, is it, what does it mean to be prepared that Jesus would come back? 
what does it mean to be ready? Does it mean there's certain things we need to do? Certain actions we need to take, a particular kind of life we're supposed to be called to? Does just being ready simply mean that we just kind of, uh, you know, are intellectually ready? We know that he's going to come back, but we kind of just carry on our life like normal, and when he comes, he comes. What exactly does it look like for us, who are Christians, to be ready when Jesus returns? The passage that we're going to go through today answers that question. Uh, Jesus has been teaching, as we saw last week, Matt walked us through as Jesus talked about the fall of Jerusalem that was going to happen in 70 AD and how the people ought to be prepared and be ready and what it looked like in their time of waiting until that happened. He now turns to the the long-term view of what is going to happen when Jesus returns and how do we as Christians respond? How do we wait? What do we do until that time? So if you have your Bible, again, Luke chapter 21 is where we'll be. Uh, As we read through, the words won't be on the screen, but hopefully you can just follow along with your Bible or Bible app or something you have open. Uh, We'll start in verse 25, and we will read right through to the end of the chapter. So please uh, read with me. Luke chapter 21, verse 25 says this. Uh, Jesus speaking, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest, the, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is God's word. As we begin, uh, I want to just give us the main idea, the main point I think Jesus is talking about here in this passage. And we've already mentioned it, really. It's it's quite obvious. And that is that Jesus will come again. Jesus will come again. That's the the main thing he's trying to to teach us here. Uh, We see it in verse 27. Uh, Jesus says, and then they will see the Son of Man, talking about himself, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And Jesus here is drawing imagery from the book of Daniel of, of this uh, Son of Man that's going to come with power to take over his kingdom, to rule and rightly reign. And he, and he applies that to himself of, of him and his second coming. 
And like I said, we, we all kind of agree that Jesus uh, will return. The question we all have is when? And uh, Jesus kind of seems to answer it for us here in this passage. He, he says in chapter, uh, verse 32, sorry, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And it, it almost sounds like he's saying this generation, these people who I'm with now, they won't die until I come. But of course, Jesus, you know, those people he spoke to, uh, they died and he didn't return. So it, it obviously does not mean that. It seems to be that this generation refers more to the kinds of people who were around, the kinds of people who reject Jesus and reject the gospel. He's saying this generation, this kind of people are the people that will remain until I come, that they're not going away. Those who reject me or reject the gospel. Jesus' focus, in fact, in this passage is not really when. It's re really about what, what is coming that you will help you know. He focuses on these signs. He talks about signs that you'll know the time is drawing near. Uh, and he, he points to them uh, at the beginning of our passage, verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of heaven will be shaken. And so he says that there's these cosmic signs, so to speak, sun, moon, stars, which are showing that he is, is coming. These, these signs, they're in a way, they're kind of like the opening act, you know, for, for the main act of Jesus coming, the son of man descending. The, the opener kind of lets you know, you know, the, the main person's about to, to come up on stage. This, the same thing here, signs point that Jesus is coming. This is what he kind of tells in a parable. This same idea, verse 29, he, he told them in a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the, kingdom, uh, that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So when you see these, these cosmic signs happening, you should know this means that Jesus is, is about to return. The, 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 these signs will let us know almost without a doubt that this is the time. Jesus is coming. But we need to be cautious here. Cautious because, uh, as Matt mentioned last week, uh, Jesus does say that no one knows the time or the hour. You know, there's been a lot of people throughout history who tried to guess the exact timing of when Jesus is going to come back, looking at the stars and patterns and the movement and trying to guess what, what exactly is going on. They've been doing this, in fact, for hundreds of years. People have been trying to guess when Jesus is coming back. None of them have been right yet. So we should be cautious. But there's another thing. When we look at the text here, Jesus does tell us that there are signs. Signs in the sun, moon, and stars. But he doesn't really tell us exactly what those signs look like. There are going to be signs, but what exactly is the nature of those signs, we aren't told. In fact, Jesus doesn't seem to think it's necessary to tell us. He tells us, hey, there's signs. And if he thought it was important that we know exactly what those signs looked like, I think he would have told us. He, he kind of seems to expect that, hey, there's going to be signs. And when you see it, you'll know it. Right? Just like, the, you know, the, the fig leaves coming out. As soon as you see the leaves, you know it's summer. When you see these signs, you're going to know that it is my time to come. 
It reminds me of when uh, I was traveling uh, to Taiwan. We were there for a film project for about a month, doing some filming and things like that. And uh, we were there in Taipei, kind of the main city in Taiwan. And uh, I was told uh, when I went there, they were like, hey, there's this really cool building in Taipei. You should go check it out. It has the world's fastest elevator. And so you can go up to the top of the building, pretty tall building, it takes you up, and then there's like a lookout and stuff like that. And so I remember being in the city and we were you know, doing our work, we're filming here and there and kind of all over in different areas. And I'd always look up and around and be like, I wonder, is that the building? Is that the building? That one's pretty tall. Like maybe it's that one, maybe it's that one. Kind of looking around, trying to figure out, like I wonder which one it is. Not really sure. Uh, and then one day we, we were filming and uh, as I was walking down the, the street, getting things ready, I, I turned a corner. I turned a corner and I looked and down you know, the, the, the corridor of the street, I see at the end this massive building. It's like twice as tall as any other building there. And I go, that's the one. There's no doubt, right? Like you can, here, we have a picture of, you can see the building. It's like way bigger. You're like, David, how did you not see that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You're in the city, you're feeling, I don't know. You didn't see, but when you see it, you're like, obviously, right? But before, I'm kind of like wondering, I'm like, I don't know, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? When you see it, you know. And Jesus says the same things about the signs. That you can try and guess, you wonder, is this the sign? Is this the sign? Is this the sign? When you see the sign, you'll know. You'll know. And in fact, Jesus, his main point is not what the signs are here in this passage. What he's really emphasizing is the response to those signs. How different people respond to the fact that he is coming. Uh, look again at verse 25. He says that there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth. There's distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Uh, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Everybody sees the sign. It's not just some people see it, some people do Everybody sees it and there's this group of people, the nations. He says they, they're, they're, they're filled with fear, distress. And Jesus, in the passage, he really contrasts that. He says, this is what the people of the world are going to react like, but here's how my people react. And it's very different. And so what I want to do is give us two responses to Jesus' return, two responses to his coming that Jesus says his people are to have. And so the first response, he says, is that his people should be filled with hopeful anticipation. Hopeful anticipation. Uh, this is uh, there clearly in verse 28. Uh, Jesus says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When everybody else is in fear and perplexity and distress, when everybody else is looking down, he says Christians should be looking up. This idea of raise your head, it's this, you know, like uh, have this hopeful confidence in what's about to happen. Raise your head, look up, you know? People around, they're worried, they're, they're distressed. They're saying, what's happening in the world? These signs, these waves, the storm, all this, they're saying it's too much. What's going on? It reminds me a little bit of, you know, if you watch any movie where the world's about to end, you know, I don't know if it's like a meteor about to crash in or there's nuclear war or, you know, aliens are about to invade, something crazy, the world's about to end. Usually at some point in the movie, there's like a shot of like the crowds. You know, there's your hero and he's all confident, but like the crowds are going crazy, right? They're terrified, they're screaming, everybody's worried, they're going crazy, there's chaos in the streets. 
because people realize this is the end. This is it. There's fear. There's distress. There's all, I'm not saying Jesus, you know, when Jesus comes back, there's going to be aliens or something. Don't hear that, okay? I'm just saying whatever those signs look like, whatever it is, the idea that Jesus is saying is that people are, are worried. There, there's perplexity. Why? Because it's the end. There, there's no more. There's no hope beyond this. Everything you've put your hope in is about to end. All, all the money you've, you've saved up, all the work you've done for your career, all the relationships you've built, they're over. There's nothing else. There, this, this is the end. And, and Jesus says his people sh- should be different. Because when everybody else is, is saying this is the end, Christians, they're saying this is the beginning. Right? Everybody else around is worried. They're distressed. They're saying everything I put my hope in is about to end. Christians are saying everything I put my hope in, it's about to start. Right? Everything we put our hope in is about to start. This is it. The redemption is drawing near. The thing we've been waiting for, longing for. That word redemption, it's a, a word that means to, to buy something back, re- redeem it for a price. Right? And that, that's you know, what we talk about. What Jesus has done is that he has redeemed his people. When he went and died on the cross, there was a price that he paid for each of our sin that we have committed against God. There's a penalty and, and Jesus came and he paid that penalty upon the cross. He, he took the death that we deserve so that all who believe and trust in him might be saved. And he, he, he accomplished redemption. But here's the thing about this redemption. Fully accomplished on the cross. Jesus did everything. It's, it's all done. But the benefits of that redemption, we do not receive all right away. When we come to faith in Christ, when we put our trust in him and say, yes, I believe what he did on the cross paid for my sin. We get, as it were, like a down payment of that redemption. We get a bit. We get a slice of what it is. We, we are now adopted as sons and daughters of God. We have that relationship with God restored. He no longer looks at us as the sinful people we are. He, instead, he looks at us as if we had lived that perfect life of Christ. There's an incredible benefit to being brought into the family of God. There's amazing benefits but it's not the fullness of the redemption. Because, you know, these people who've been saved, they still sin. They still feel the trials. They still feel the afflictions of this world. They feel, still feel all the fears and the anxieties. They still live in this broken world. Or to say it another way, that Christians now have been saved from the penalty of their sin. They have been redeemed from the penalty of their sin. that They no longer bear that. Yet there is a power of sin over us and over our lives that still remains. There's a presence of sin in the world around us that still remains. A penalty, yes, but the power and the presence of sin is still there. We still need to be redeemed from that. And that is what the Bible says happens when Jesus returns. There is a full redemption that happens. That wonderful day when it is not just our souls and bodies that will be redeemed, but all of creation will be redeemed. Now look at how John writes about the redemption that will be ours in 1 John chapter 3. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. 
So we are God's child. We've been adopted. There's some benefit of redemption now. And what we will be, so there's more, has not yet appeared. There's more to come. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So there is a day coming when, when Christians will be transformed. So that the power of sin over them no longer remains. There's this amazing transformation that we become like Christ. All of our sinful thoughts, all of our sinful motives, all of our desires and actions are wiped away. We are remade totally new. We no longer have that envy and pride and jealousy and bitterness. Instead, our hearts are full of the love of God. The burdens and anxieties of our life fall off our shoulders. We, we no longer have just the desire to do, but the desire to not do something, but not the ability to carry it out. We now have not only the desire, but also the ability to live holy lives, perfect before the Lord. No sinful thoughts, no sinful actions, perfectly redeemed. But not just that our souls are redeemed. When Jesus returns, the Bible talks about the redemption of our bodies. Think about this. Every ache in our body is gone. Every chronic illness wiped out. Every cancer cell destroyed. Your body working, functioning exactly as God has designed it. There's no more glasses. There's no more migraines. There's no more canes. There's no more walkers. There's no more meds in the morning and side effects to manage. You have a body that works exactly as it was meant to. And not just the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of this world. I mean, all of the evil in this world, all of the things that cause us anxiety and stress are gone. All of the disasters, all of the sicknesses, all the thorns, the thistles wiped out. There's now a world of perfection with our Savior. That's full redemption. And we should long for that day. We should long for that day because that is the very best. It's what we hope in. It's what we put our trust in and say, this is what we are looking forward to as Christians. Isaac Watts was a, an old hymn writer and, and he wrote a great little hymn, which I think expresses it well. He says, how long, dear Savior, oh, how long shall this bright hour delay? Fly swifter round ye wheels of time and bring the welcome day. His own soft hand shall wipe the tears from every weeping eye and pains and groans and griefs and fears and death itself shall die. That's what we as Christians hope in, a hopeful anticipation of Christ's return. It's not that when we see the signs or think we see the signs, we are distressed, we are fear. No. It is a hopeful anticipation. The thing we long for most will finally be here. So that's the first response. The first response is this hopeful anticipation. But there's a second. A second response that Jesus gives near the end of our passage here today. Uh, he says we are to watch ourselves. To watch ourselves. Now look at verse uh, 34. Jesus says, but watch yourselves, 
lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipations, which uh, means like an unbridled indulgence and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, that final day that Jesus returns, will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. It's interesting that in the midst of uh, all of this cosmic signs, all of this chaos, all these things, Jesus instructs his disciples uh, not to look at the signs, not, not watch the signs, but watch themselves. Not to look outward, but to look inward. Why would he do that? Why does he tell us to watch ourselves? It seems that Jesus understands that there's a danger. It's almost this watch yourself, beware, watch out for yourself. He tells us, because your hearts may be weighed down. Dissipations, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that day come upon you like a trap. The idea he's getting at is really that there is a, a danger that we could be so um, intoxicated with this life that it keeps us from being ready for the return of Christ. The, the day will come upon us like a, a trap. Not that Jesus is somehow trying to trap us, but the, the trap is this picture of something happening suddenly. Right? You, you think of a, a bear walking in the forest. You've got a little bear trap set. He, he's walking around. He's not really looking at what's about to happen. He's not paying attention to the ground. And suddenly, he's caught. There, there, there's this sense that we as Christians perhaps are not ready we're not prepared. We're just kind of going aloft and we're, we're, our hearts are weighed down. Our hearts are perhaps drawn away from Christ. In a way in which when he comes, we're shown to not have any real true faith at all. In fact, the, the book of Luke is full of warnings like this. Uh, Luke picks up on a lot of uh, stories that Jesus told about this exact danger. Uh, Luke records Jesus telling the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower is a parable, a story Jesus tells about a man who goes out to sow seed. And there's four different soils. There's a hard soil, a rocky soil, a thorny soil, and a good soil. And the thorny soil, the, the, the plants kind of begin to grow, but there's a bunch of weeds, thorns that are growing up alongside of it. And they grow faster and, and more than the plant itself. And they kind of choke out the life of the, the plant. This is what the, Jesus says these uh, thorns represent. He says, as for what fell among thorns, uh, they are those who hear. So they, they hear the message of Christ, they hear his word. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Which in the context of the parable is talking about salvation. They're, they're showing that they don't actually have the good soil, that their hearts are not truly right. Jesus tells another parable, the parable of the rich fool. Luke chapter 12, Jesus told him a parable saying the rich, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The idea is that there, our hearts can be weighed down by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life in such a way that our hearts are not free to love and serve Christ as they should. Throughout the Bible, one of the images that comes up over and over again of talking about the Christian life is a race. That the Christian life is like a runner running a race, the race of faith. And we need to make it to the end. We need that end line being either our death or Jesus' return. And so as we run this race, this idea of being weighed down, it's kind of like you're a runner on this long distance race. You know you've got a long way to go. You know you've got a goal. You know you've got where you're headed. And as you're running along, you begin to start, you know, picking up some things along the side of the road and, and putting them in your backpack. You know, at first, it's just some little pebbles here and there. You're like, oh, these are cool. You know, you pick up some leaves and twigs, and you're like, oh, this is interesting. You start stopping by the side of the road, and you're talking with other people. They've got some things. You begin kind of trading things with them, storing up things. You, before you know it, you've got like a, a laptop in your suitcase. You've got some big heavy rocks. You've got all this stuff that you find, big logs. You put it in. You've got all this stuff on your backpack. It's like a suitcase you're wearing, just trying to run this race, and you get tired and more tired. And eventually, as you're running the race, you realize you're just so exhausted from running the race, it would be easier to just stop running. I mean, the things you really like are all the things you've collected in your backpack anyways. So why, why don't you just take them out and enjoy them here? You you'd originally just brought them along for the journey. But now you're saying, no, no, I, I think I'll just stop running because I'm pretty satisfied with the things in my backpack. The Christian life can be like that. We, we have all these things that are not bad in and of themselves here in this world, and we grab them, and we attach them, and we want to hold on to them, except they're weighing us down. They're, they're stopping us from actually running the race. Maybe not running as fast, or maybe not running at all. You could think about it another way. You could think of our heart being weighed down almost like a plane. It's like a plane that's sitting there on the tarmac at the airport, and the, the engines, you know, are just going. They're ready to go. It's, the plane's ready to take off. But on the plane are these ropes. They're tied to the wings. They're tied to the hull all around, and these ropes tied down, and there's these huge, massive granite blocks on the tarmac, and everything's just tied down. The plane wants to go, but there's this tension. There's this something that's holding the plane back from taking off. And it's almost like Jesus is saying, you know what, you are meant for something. This plane, the plane's meant to fly, right, to go. Jesus is saying, you're meant to do something, and yet there's these things in your life that are holding you back. There's these things that are holding you down. And as the plane needs to be kind of cut free to sail and soar as it should, our hearts to love and serve Jesus need to perhaps be cut free from some of the things that are holding us back. So what does it look like? What does it look like to not have our hearts weighed down in this way? Well, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we can't have any pleasure or any comfort here in this life. It's not that we deny all the, the, the pleasures of, of life in, in any sense. I mean, God has made good things. He's made good things for us to enjoy. He is the one who invented comfort and pleasure. There are things that God has given us that we might glorify him through enjoying it also doesn't mean that there are no cares in this life that we attend to. You know, you've got to work. You need to earn money for your family. Somebody has got to cook the meals. 
The house has to be clean. There's cares that need to be taken care of. What it means to not have our hearts weighed down is it means that we are willing to cut free any pleasure or any comfort that is slowing us down from living for Christ. That we are willing to cut free any comfort or any pleasure that is slowing us down from living for Christ. Any care of this world that perhaps is causing us to sin, but perhaps it's just a care of this world that's helping us dig our roots in deeper here in this world here and now. We have to remember, we we are pilgrims on a journey to the celestial city. We are sojourners in a foreign land. This world here is not our forever home. It's just a hotel stop on the way through. Like, you know, hotel, go, great. Unpack your clothes, put it in the drawers, but don't start setting up like picture frames and photos on the wall. It's not your home. You're just there for a bit. Don't get too comfortable. So Jesus tells us, stay awake, be ready. Because the day may spring upon you like a trap. It may be coming and you're saying, oh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure when Jesus is coming back. He hasn't told us exactly when, but it seems like he's done that for a reason. If we knew Jesus was coming back in 10 years, we'd say, okay, well, the first nine, I'll get it figured out. And then by the last year, I'll be all together. Jesus doesn't tell us. He just says, be ready now. Don't, don't be consumed with the, the things of this world here and now. Be ready for my return. And so often what happens is that there's really two errors that we can kind of fall into, two temptations as Christians when we think about Jesus' return. There are some of us who when we think of Jesus' return, we think of him coming back, we think about being ready and what that looks like, we kind of start to focus on the signs themselves. We think about, okay, what do these signs exactly mean? When exactly is it going to happen? Are there certain political figures that mean this or that? Are there things in this world that we should correlate to Jesus' return? And we kind of become consumed with the signs. But there's the equally, you know, opposite error, which is that uh, we say, well, I know Jesus is coming back and um, when he does, he does. And we just kind of carry on with our life. We're so consumed with what's going on in this life that the idea that Jesus would return, we don't really worry about. But there's actually something else that Jesus calls us to. He says, don't be consumed with the signs. Don't be consumed with this life. Be consumed with following me, with a life of holiness, with a life that's lived in glory to its creator. That's what it means to be ready That's what it means to be prepared. So with the time we have left, I just want to offer three brief things. Three ways in which we can actually go about doing that. We are called to this life of hopeful anticipation of his coming, which should bring us great joy and comfort. And yet also this life of holiness, of watching ourselves and our life. How do you do that? Uh, The first is really for those Uh, who are not Christians here. Uh, The calling of, yes, holiness and all of that is good, but it makes no difference if you are separated from Christ when he returns. 
You know, our passage talks about how this day will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. For every single person, whether that be in our, our death or when Jesus returns, we will have to face the Son of Man. We will have to stand before him and give an account. And so the question is, when we give that account, will it be of our own lives? Do we put all of our faith in what we have done and say, this is good enough for you, Jesus? Or can we trust in his perfect life? And say that his life that he lived is enough. His death that he died is enough. And instead of our record being offered at that point, Jesus is instead. We must first attach ourselves to Christ. But for the rest of us, those of us who would call ourselves Christians, there's two other things. Two other things that I think we should keep in mind as we seek to think about how we can actually do this. The first, in relation to our calling to watch ourselves, is this. Help others to watch with you. Help others to watch with you. This is what I mean. When we go about living our life, we can watch ourselves and we can see ourselves and our sin to a certain degree. Uh, But there are a lot of things in our life that we can't see. And there are a lot more things that we don't want to see. And Christ has given us the church, his people, to be able to help us see ourselves where we don't want to or can't. And in fact, this is what the author of Hebrews really encourages. He encourages us as Christians to help each other in this, not to live our Christian life on our own. This is what he says in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The other thing, look, Jesus is coming. The day is drawing near. So what do you do? How do you get ready? You encourage one another. You build one another up. You speak into one another's lives. God has given us other Christians for that very purpose, to help us watch ourselves or we can't. And so I just encourage you, you know, if you have a good Christian friend, whether it's your spouse or someone else here in the church, Just go to that friend and invite that kind of thing. Because it's scary to do that to someone, but just invite it. Ask them. Say, uh, are there things in my spiritual life that I can't see, but I should? Ask them, am I attached to this world in ways I shouldn't be? Ask them, are are there ways in which I need to, you know, get ready for the return of Jesus, which I'm not doing? Are there things you see that I can't see, basically? Help me. And then when they tell you, say thank you. Say thank you. Don't get defensive. Don't try and defend yourself. Say thank you. And then go and pray about it. And discern if that's really truly the intention of your heart. And I hope you see that in order to have, those kind of conversations should actually be normal in the church. That shouldn't be like a weird thing. But in order to have that, you have to build relationships with other people in the church. You can't just go up to a stranger in the lobby and ask them this. They don't know you and they'd be weirded out. You have to actually invest in other people, other people in the church. You have to build into them and you have to form trust and relationships and that takes time and effort. And so I just encourage you, if you're not already in a community group, if you're not already in the Bible study, men's or women's, those are great places to do that. They're not the only place but they are one of the main places that that happens. 
So if you're not in one of those groups, I just encourage you, that's what those groups are for. So you can know each other and speak into each other's life and help each other grow in love for Christ and others. So watch with others. And the last thing is prayer. It's uh, the thing, in fact, Jesus highlights in this passage. In verse 36, he says, uh, Stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. It's kind of this idea, if you were to stay awake, you need to be praying. (laughs) Praying for God's help because this is not something that we can do on our own. If we want to have that hopeful anticipation, if we want to be ready and watch ourselves properly, it's not something that we can just say, okay, I'm going to do it. It's something we need prayer because our natural selves despise that. We do not want that on our own. And yet through God's spirit working in us, there is hope that that can actually be achieved. But it means we go to God and we say, Lord, there's things in my life I probably don't want to give up. There's things in my life that I'm probably attached to in ways I shouldn't be. Help me see them and help me leave them for you, which is far better. It means that we pray, Lord, help me persevere in this. Help me continue on to the end. It's not our own strength. It's God that will hold us fast to the end. And so we pray and we ask him to do exactly that. So let me pray for us together. Father, the weight of the responsibility and the weight of your coming is so great and we are so inadequate for it. And so we ask, Father, for all of us sitting here that you would give us strength, strength to hold fast to you, to find the hope and the joy of your return in the midst of circumstances in our lives which seem unhopeful. And Lord, we pray above all that you would come, that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, and that you would make us ready. In Jesus' name, amen.